0: What's up, Seamus? Hey, man. How are you? Will? I'm doing amazing. It's a good of day to be alive. <laughs> it's a running joke on Goop Fellows I'm, yeah. I'm too good. I need to.
1: Oh, what a time to be alive. Yeah, it's always right. is.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I'm really excited for Doug Braun Harvey. Yeah, Yeah, Doug. So, I mean, for people that don't know, uh, Doug Braun Harvey is a sexual health author, he's a psychotherapist, and he is the founder of the Harvey Institute. Uh, But since 1993, Doug Harvey has been developing and implementing a sexual health-based treatment program uh, for men with out-of-control sexual behavior, OCSB, which we really get into uh, today. But basically, we're really... I mean, turning the whole idea of sex addiction on its head, and he's kind of reframing how we should even view that. So really excited for this conversation.
1: Yeah, it's a really, really great conversation. Let's jump in.
0: Doug Braun Harvey, thank you so much for being on Goop Fellows. Thank you for having me. It's a a delight and an honor to be here and talk
1: to both of you. That's great. So if you can just start by diving in and telling us a little bit about your work and one of the interesting terms that that I learned that I'd never heard of before, which was OCSB and how that differs from what we kind of commonly think of as as sex addiction, Uh, I think that would be really helpful
2: they're kind of intertwined Mm -hmm. to tell you a little bit about myself i'm a a licensed marriage and family therapist here in california i live in san diego california but i'm primarily a group therapist by trade Mm -hmm. i've been doing group therapy for men who have what i call out of control sexual behavior for 27 years Mm -hmm. i just retired from being a psychotherapist in december so now i i my meaning in life now is really spent on training and teaching others to do what we're going to hear to talk about today um and to write um i've written three books in the last 10 years on weekends, mm-hmm. and I'm not going to do that again. <laughs> so people can, uh, and I also have a company called the Harvey Institute, um, where I uh, founded the company with my, my husband and I, and what our mission of the Harvey Institute is to improve healthcare outcomes through the integration of sexual health. Mm-hmm. So we teach and train a wide range of healthcare, social service delivery organizations on um, how to improve what they're trying to accomplish with human beings by addressing the sexual health of the people that they're working with.
1: Amazing.
0: So you... A lot of your work uh, brilliantly kind of points out the fact that we're using this term sex addiction uh, very flippantly both as lay people and clinically, um, but you're, you are you call for reframing that 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 title. Can you explain why that, that's so important that we, we look at it differently? Thank, thanks Will for focusing me back on that because Seamus asked <laughs> me to talk about that as well. Um, I think one of the
2: important distinctions in the idea of sex addiction from what we're going to learn about today a little bit about out of control sexual behavior is there's, a, there's an idea that uh, human sexual behavior can actually become a disease or a disorder. And that's really what sex addiction says, that there's a way in which a human being can eventually have their sexual behavior be considered a pathology, a disorder, mm-hmm. a psychiatric condition, an addiction. Um, And that's been an idea that's been debated since the uh, uh, late 70s, early 80s in the United States. Without consensus, it has never been clearly established that there's a threshold uh, where in which human sexual behavior actually becomes a state of pathology. I've never believed we're gonna be able to find that. I think it's too laden with cultural and uh, biases in the mental health professional to really come Mm -hmm. to that conclusion, even there might be science that puts us in this direction. So I've always advocated for a non-disease model. Mm -hmm. Now, so the languaging of that has changed with me over the years. In 2004, an eminent sexologist in the UK, John Bancroft, Recommended through a research study of his that we use the term out of control sexual behavior until we have a better understanding of this delineation between whether sexual behavior can be a disease or not. So mm-hmm. it, since 2004, I and my colleague Michael Vigrito have used the term out of control sexual behavior to say that this is a human behavior problem, not a disorder, mm-hmm. and it doesn't that the name we hope doesn't convey a particular kind of etiology or uh, you know kind of assumption of, of the cause or the the you know, the general story as to why everybody has this felt sense of being out of Mm -hmm. control. And our model is really based on that people who are having out of control sexual behavior, as we call it, who feel out of control with their sexual urges, thoughts, and behaviors, if they align their life with these six principles of sexual health, I hope we have a moment to chat about, if they align their lives with these six principles of sexual health, which we advocate, it's incompatible with having out of control sexual behavior. Mm -hmm. So men need help, need guidance, need, need support, need to know their sexual lives matter, Um, And that when we help them with their sexual lives, men are very motivated to align their life with principles of sexual health. The dilemma is we ignore the sexual lives of adult men until they injure people. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so uh, I'm very interested in giving men a way in which to have a narrative for how they can address and feel good about who they are sexually without waiting to injure somebody before somebody cares.
1: Hmm. Right now is this is, is out of control sexual behavior something that's
2: exclusive to men? Well, it, it is at this point the only people I've treated for out of control sexual behavior in my practice and, and others is in the model that we wrote about is only for men mm-hmm. because that's all mm-hmm. we've treated. Uh, there is currently some therapists looking at how this, this sexual health model for out of control sexual behavior may apply to women. Mm-hmm. Uh, the one difference they're finding in women populations is that women who are experiencing having out of control sexual behavior, another factor in their lives that's not so much a factor in men's lives, is that they have to deal with the daily uh stressors of sexism and misogyny and so that's another factor in understanding women's Mm -hmm. solution to managing their lives through dysregulated sexual behavior where men are not having to deal with that Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. what are some examples of out of control sexual behavior well i'm gonna i want you to see how the narrative is different from that question Mm -hmm. if you would if this was a sex addiction therapist and you were asking that question i would start describing to you lurid and a kind of tawdry sex acts that people do Mm -hmm, uh, that really are about what body part goes in what orifice with with person in what situation under what's cultural context and then we decide which ones are okay or not. Mm -hmm, Uh, That's not what I'm gonna give you a list of. Uh, People who feel sexually out of control are having urges for sexual activity, are having desires for sexual activity, are having certain sexual thoughts and behaviors. And there's a couple of factors that are incongruent with those states. One is they're either engaging in sexual behavior that's not congruent with the agreements they have with themselves Mm -hmm. or the people they're in relationship with. So many people who have out-of-control sexual behavior make a sexual agreement with a partner and don't keep it. And then unilaterally change that agreement. They mm-hmm. don't tell their partner, they don't negotiate with the partner Now, who teaches people how to do this, right? So they mm-hmm. end up doing this unilaterally, secretively, and mm-hmm. then it gets discovered. Um, that's one way people will talk about having out-of-control sexual behavior. Other people will feel sexually out-of-control when they have a particular sexual interest, a uh, sexual turn-on, a sexual kind of uh, 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 fantasy uh, that they really find exciting and, and maybe the peak erotic pleasure. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're conflicted about it. They feel feel ashamed of it, or somebody will judge them for it. So they're secretive about it. So they may feel sexually out of control because they're, they're gaining access to this very important erotic experience secretively. And then, of course, it gets discovered. And then that often can be called something out of control. So oftentimes, what's perceived as a dysregulated sexual behavior, I believe, is actually somebody trying to come up with a solution for a mm-hmm. conflict they're in mm-hmm. that they have no help with. Uh, they'll be shamed if they talk about it. They have no... Um, conversation skills to even engage in in this dialogue um, Mm -hmm. and then they have to unilaterally come up with a solution on their own Mm -hmm. that's not a good equation for people
1: having effective behavior Mm -hmm. it's interesting Mm -hmm. because on the podcast we talk a lot about addiction and it seems like what you're illustrating is is quite different from what we often seem to find in addictive behavior where there is some sort of trauma or some sort of inner angst or discomfort that drives compulsive addictive behavior. And that seems quite different from what you're describing with OCSV.
2: The one thing I would, I would maybe offer here is that I think when we talk about addiction, we're looking for a general narrative that applies to all people mm-hmm. as to why it's there. That's the error in thinking I find. Mm-hmm. Um, even the addiction field, uh, it, you know, elusively tries to find a narrative that fits most people who might be struggling with opioid addiction or all sorts of things mm-hmm. that are horrible and terrible and decimate people's lives. I'm more interested in a client-centered model that says, yes, you may have this behavior, you may have this condition that really causes terrible things in your life, but let's look at who you are as a person, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, rather than how you may have a disorder that has a very clear and prescribed idea of how we treat you. Right. Mm-hmm. Now, for, for, for drug and alcohol addiction, this works for some people, but even in the drug and alcohol addiction treatment field, the treatment methods we have are not universally effective with most people, even though we have an idea of what we think addiction is. Uh, so, I, I, mm-hmm. I just we have to be very cautious about mm-hmm. the language we use, and, and that's why I, I'm kind of a language, uh, you know, persnickety person, mm-hmm. and I really think our language matters. So, I, yeah. when people say sexual behavior can be an addictive process, I disagree with them. Mm-hmm. I don't think it, we have any science that has concluded that human sexual behavior can actually become an addictive process. And so, that's All why right. I think we have to come up with other ideas and, and listen to our clients
1: to help us understand so, why they're in this problem. So you I don't think that, for instance, because I'm thinking, in, as you're talking about this, obviously thinking about pornography and how Okay, now we're going to have that sexual <laughs> health
2: moment we talked about. Yeah.
1: L- let's talk about this word pornography. Uh-huh. I don't use the word. Okay. I think it's uh, biased,
2: and I think it's a, a pejorative word that doesn't okay. make people very open to talking about uh, this part of their life. Okay. I use the word sexual imagery, and people look at sexual imagery for entertainment, mm-hmm. uh, for arousal, uh, for excitement and for orgasm. And we have a lot of reasons why people do this. And so I, I'd like in our interview, let's just use the word sexual imagery and hear what the audience feels in their okay. body when they hear mm-hmm. that word rather than pornography.
1: Well, it's interesting because obviously it's not nearly as, as loaded and doesn't have this pejorative uh, uh, connotation. Yes. but. It, to call a spade a spade, the industry now that that is an exploding industry and has driven technology and and is really based on on compulsory behavior. It's based on this idea that um, okay, here it, it there, it's I I can see how and we've talked with like we were talking with Peggy Ornstein about um, boys and sex and boys and health. There's there's this uh, sort of to use the term addictive, there's a bit of an addictive quality where they may wander into sexual imagery or they'll discover um, sexual imagery and then find that they're constantly looking for the next more intense, more, you know, Gratifying, mm. exciting, stimulating image. I've
2: read I've read Peggy's book and I've heard her discuss this. I, there's differences of opinion about this. Mm-hmm. We don't know enough about adolescent sexual development to know if what's actually happening is that youth are having more access to an embodied somatic experience of intense sexual excitement and arousal that is new for boys to have access to mm-hmm. this level of frequency, and we're not teaching boys how to manage that um, right. embodied state more more responsibly and with with knowledge. We have to remind ourselves, when boys make access to sexual imagery, they're looking at entertainment not documentaries and so when you go and watch car chases Mm -hmm. in a movie theater we don't have to tell boys by the way that's not how you're going to drive a car Mm, they kind of know that but we don't educate people who have access to this imagery at a very young Mm. age in a very secretive way by the way that's entertainment that's not reality Mm -hmm. and so they're they're having a somatic embodied experience very new with a brain that doesn't know how to understand this nobody's helping them with this and they go back. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes they're going back not because it's an addictive process. They're going back because they're trying to understand what's happening, and there's no one helping them. Mm-hmm. There's no conversation. There's no conversation. Yeah. And the human I, species will do this when we have an experience that's so in, in, you know nervous system arousing, and there's
0: no narrative. Right. We go back to try to understand it. I've heard you use the analogy of, it's like watching a war film for firearm safety advice.
2: Yes, that's right, that's right.
0: You know, so it, it's, the, it's the ability
2: of the brain to discern the difference between entertainment when we're aroused versus a human experience that has meaning in our body. And our body doesn't discern the difference, our brain helps us discern the difference. And 11-year-olds are on their own on this one.
0: Right. What's up guys, it's Will. As you probably know, my day job is consulting people around the world via webcam at my Functional Medicine Health Center. Normally I'm consulting one-on-one, but I'm really excited to announce the launch of my brand new Functional Medicine online group class. This virtual group class is my solution to continue making Functional Medicine more accessible and more affordable for people around the world. Designed as a starting point for those who are new to functional medicine, this online group class allows you to learn more about your health from a functional medicine perspective, equipping you with the knowledge and tools to improve your health. During the class, I will review the comprehensive blood labs that you've completed before the class and give an explanation of the optimal ranges for each and every marker and what it means for your health. You will also have a chance to privately ask me and my team questions and have them answered in real time. You will also receive your own takeaway list from your labs so you can refer to it at any time after the class. In addition, everyone in the class will receive customized action plans based on their lab results, personalized lifestyle recommendations, and a list of foods and supplements to focus on and foods to avoid, all based on your lab results you will leave the class feeling empowered and educated about your wellness. Learn more at drwillcole.com. That's D-R-W-I-L-L-C-O-L-E.com. So in context of a relationship, how
1: often is uh, out of control sexual behavior a kind of a reflection of partners not being on the same page? intimately.
2: The way I use that language, Seamus, is I call that an erotic conflict. Mm -hmm. Uh, Couples who may have different erotic needs, different ideas of sexual activity, sexual desire, couples who may have different ideas about how often or frequently they want to engage in sexual activity. And there are couples who, over a period of time, actually lose attraction and erotic desire for their partners. Um, These are all conflicts. And the dilemma is that couples really have little to no skills as to how to talk this... Or even education to know what's happening so what ends up happening is there's lots of blaming and there's lots of stories about why this might be happening and the the narrative that somebody's sexual behavior is out of control Mm -hmm. um, is uh, is is one or particularly is a sex addiction and more and more importantly is very comforting for many couples Uh because Mm -hmm. it gives them a clear explanation uh, it gives them something to do and right. it allows them to remain attached to each other mm-hmm. without seeing that they have a conflict. There's right. this disease mm-hmm. that has entered the system. And if right. we can just cure that disease, just these erotic differences we have uh, won't have to be so
1: painfully uh, and difficultly talked about. Sure, just send them off to a sex, sex camp and, or sex addiction camp and, and everything will be fine. The other thing that I really want to create
2: some empathy for around the sex addiction model, um, we're finding more and more, and we'll go back to sexual imagery as well, people who have conflicts about their use of sexual imagery, we're finding that people who really, really identify with the porn addiction story mm-hmm. are people who have moral conflicts with their use of sexual imagery. And the saying they're a porn addict allows them to stay in good relationship with God, Mm -hmm. good relationship with their church, good relationship with their religious community, with their family. I have a porn addiction. It's not that I have pleasure looking at erotic imagery that Mm -hmm. makes a a significant conflict with my belief system. These are painful, painful narratives for people to live with.
1: And porn addiction
2: rescues them from
0: having to look at those difficult attachment ruptures. Mm -hmm. So what what you're saying with these circumstances or these examples is really your uh, advice would be to get to the root cause of why they're having these out of control sexual behaviors. Is that correct to Yeah, to and, and I, I, think, I think more so is not so much root
2: cause, but uh, what are the sources of these dilemmas that they've come up with this treatment plan that mm-hmm. has, yeah. you know, not a very good one and it's caused a lot of harm and hurt and, you know, lots of things that aren't helpful to people. And uh, not so much the root cause, but what are the sexual health mm-hmm. dilemmas the person has mm-hmm. that uh, that we live in a culture that doesn't even teach people how to speak of sexual health, no less how to talk about how your sexual health might be causing you distress or causing you
1: to make decisions that make your life feel out of control. Do you find that there are some common drivers in most cases that are leading people towards out of control sexual behavior?
2: Well, we, we've identified three that come from the literature and the research. That again, if there's no psychiatric condition that's there, or a mm-hmm. substance abuse problem, or you know, domestic violence or right. interpersonal
1: violence at home, or um, you know, right. or a medical Sorry. condition, then
2: then then we can look at the
1: reasons why it might be there. And to clarify, you're you're speaking about sexual behavior that's not predatory, right? Oh, thank you for mentioning that. Out of control sexual behavior only
2: applies to consensual okay. sexual behavior. So, so mm-hmm. let me review the six principles of sexual health as long as I'm saying consent. The the OCSB model really deals with people moving their sexual life to align with six principles of sexual health. That mm-hmm. actually come from the World Health Organization uh, definition of sexual health. Uh, so it means that sexual behavior is consensual, okay. non-exploitive, uh, there's a degree of honesty and shared values, that it's protected from HIV, STIs, and unplanned or unwanted pregnancy, and that it's pleasurable. And that so we look at aligning people who have out-of-control sexual behavior. Can they change their vision of sexual health to be aligned with these six principles mm-hmm. of sexual health? Okay. So the OCSB model is only for people who already are maintaining the consent sexual health mm-hmm principle. This is not a model for people involved in predatory, uh, you know, uh, sexual violence, non-consensual behavior. Mm-hmm. The, the, everything I'm saying ha- does not apply to that population. Now, the mm-hmm. dilemma with the sex addiction field is the sex addiction field and other m- areas of where they see this as a disease don't distinguish between consensual right. and non-consensual behavior in their mm-hmm. clinical populations. Uh, Michael and I really hold the field to task on that one. We think that's a major oversight in the field. Our, so we've just said, look, our our model is only for consensual behavior.
1: Okay, right. so you've identified three key drivers. The key three key drivers are people
2: are having difficulties with regulation, with regulating their behaviors. So what does that mean? Well, there's a whole science of how human beings regulate their behavior. You know how do how do we how is it we're sitting in this chair mm-hmm. and talking to each other instead of uh, doing something else that mm-hmm. we're regulating ourselves okay. right now. So this is something human beings have to do in order to, to live and survive. And so some people have difficulty in certain moments or certain life circumstances is regulating themselves. Mm -hmm. Some people can regulate themselves better internally, meaning they can kind of like inside themselves, make decisions and and follow through well. Other people need the environment to regulate them more effectively. Mm -hmm. Uh, We we call call those Uh, (laughs) uh, three-year-olds. It's it's just the way the world works, right? Uh So human regulation is is a skill set to survive as a human being. People without a control sexual behavior have certain circumstances or or times in their life, and particularly around their sexual activity, where they're not regulating themselves effectively. The second area is attachment. Uh, We know that human beings regulate and function better through relationship and connection with other people. We are not designed to function well in isolation. Mm -hmm. We function through relationship and connection. So sometimes people with erotic control sexual behavior, their attachments and the way they form relationships and how they get close or distant with people when they need to be doesn't work real well. And the sexual behavior becomes an actual solution to these attachment dilemmas they have. And the last area is erotic conflict, that people have erotic turn-ons or sexual attractions to other people that might be a source of conflict or uh, they've what quite, quite accepted about themselves. They might mm-hmm. have an unconventional turn on. We call them sort of fetishes or, you know, kinky kind of things mm-hmm. that they might feel conflicted about. So those are the three areas we focus on with men who come to us for treatment with OCSB. We're really interested in how they regulate themselves, how they form mm-hmm. their meaningful attachments, and are they having some sexual erotic orientation conflicts that they've avoided.
1: So it seems like shame mm-hmm. is kind of at the root of a lot of this.
2: Shame is, is a, a, at a root of a lot of human problems, mm-hmm. but I, I think the shame in particular is about the erotic conflict. That's where I see the erotic conflict mm-hmm. the most prevalent of the men I work with. Um, the, the hiddenness, the secretiveness of who they are erotically, the difficulty in uh, being judged by others for who they are erotically, mm-hmm. including mental health professionals, um, is, so, is so deep. Um, that mm. the, the, the gyrations men will go through to keep their erotic life secret mm-hmm. is, is mm. astonishing. I, I never stop at one, at just being in awe of the way these men, what I think of as I think of the, the therapist Esther Perel, that what mm-hmm. we do to keep our erotic self alive in an environment that wants it destroyed mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. is remarkable in the life of men. And I admire them for trying to keep this part of themselves alive. And so the therapy we do is how can you embrace and integrate this part of yourself um, without it being a source of conflict and shame?
0: Because you, we, right. we, we don't do erotic ectomies. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> so if somebody feels like they have out-of-control sexual behavior, what's the first step? What, what do they do?
2: That's such a great question question because the dilemma is going to be the first thing they have to do is decide if they're willing to go to sex addiction treatment or work with a professional who treats sex addiction because that's Mm -hmm. ninety percent of the people out there This is a big decision for people. Um, uh, They are going to find a huge range of professionals everywhere in the country who treat this from a sex addiction perspective. I get messages throughout the day. I just talked with somebody today who contacted me. They read uh, about a sex addiction therapist in their town. They didn't like what they were gonna do. They found me and said, guide me to somebody. I Mm -hmm. don't wanna do this kind of therapy. So that's the first question. Are you willing to go to a sex addiction therapy program to get help? For many people they are, fine. Mm -hmm. But for some people, they want an alternative. That's harder. Mm-hmm. So I think one thing to do is maybe to to see if you have a certified sex therapist uh, who's in your community who's a licensed mental health professional and has done additional training to be a certified sex therapy uh, mm-hmm. provider. And that's a good start. Look for a certified sex therapist through the American Association of Sex Educators, Counselors, and Therapists, ASEC Certified Sex Therapist. That's a good place to start
0: if you have anybody in your community, even in your state, Got it. And you recommend... like solo uh, therapy as well as group therapy,
2: correct? The OCSB model we've created is a combination model of individual and group therapy. Now, that's a very privileged treatment model Mm -hmm. uh, for, you know, in a large urban environment. Most places in the country don't have the kind of, you know, populations enough to to have a group going and have therapists trained to provide both those services. So the OCSB model is a very flexible model. So many people work with OCSB individually with therapists. Some people work remotely with therapists. Um, but group is 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 a is an emerging treatment modality that I'm very committed to training other therapists to provide that. So right now, for the first time, I just started a group of therapists from around the country who are doing OCSB uh, groups, and wow. I'm wa- and I'm helping them do their work. So it's growing, but it's a it's nothing compared to the sex addiction system. So you,
1: it's very different. Can you walk right. us through like what group therapy is like? Because I have in my mind you know sort of a twelve step program, which I'm sure is not what it's like at all. But what what is the environment like? What is the tr- what are the treatment protocols? like? If what does the, it feel if like? The,
2: if the men were in this room, uh-huh. the first thing they'd want me to say is they love the group. Okay. Mm. The men absolutely love coming to this group. It's, they, it's their favorite 90 minutes of the week. <laughs> um, they love being with each other. It's mm-hmm. meaningful and important. They feel less alone and they don't feel judged. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. I think the, the primary narrative of our group work is the men create their own personal sexual health plan. And one of the things in their sexual health plan is they have boundaries of things they don't want to do anymore. Mm -hmm. The only agreement we ask of group members is that when you cross a boundary on your sexual health plan, you engage in a behavior you're not wanting to engage, you come to the group and you're honest about it. Uh That's all we ask. You come to the group and you're honest about it. So we're interested in helping men become agreement keepers Mm -hmm. and be honest when they don't. And so when the men come to the group and they, they haven't kept a boundary on their sexual health plan. If they, they wouldn't need to be in our group if they could come to group and be honest about that. So, so they come to group for several weeks and don't disclose that. Uh-huh. And then they eventually do. And then we talk about what was it like to be here and not be honest with us? Uh-huh. What was it like to not keep the agreement? What did the group members notice about John who didn't keep the agreement? Mm-hmm. So we focus about how a person functions when they keep their agreement and when they don't. That, that's what we're interested in, not have
0: you had a relapse in a disease. Mm-hmm. Got it. Interesting. I'm interested um, in you, all your experience for all these years, being coming from a functional medicine perspective on myself and, and physical health and sort of bi-directional relationship between physical health and mental-emotional health, and, and you talking about sexual health. Well, my I mean, vision for you would
2: be for the future, yeah, you always yeah. include sexual health in that
0: sentence yeah. for the rest of your life. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm learning yeah. so much them how I could help patients better. But how... Have you seen any, like, this connection between when they start to reintegrate those parts of themselves that they're hiding and how that impacts their physical Physical health? health, Do you ever see that? Oh, all the time. You know, sexual health, mental
2: health, physical health, and spiritual or, or relational health, social health are so intertwined. One affects the other, and you can't improve your sexual health without improving your physical health. And you can't uh, have physical health problems and have optimal sexual health. They're they're completely intertwined. Mm-hmm. So you know we'll see men uh, who for the first time in their life um, are in OCSB therapy and they want to know their relationship with HIV for the first time in their life, or they want to know if they've ever had an STI or, or go for STI tests, or they have a contraception plan uh, with mm-hmm. their couple. I mean, men should all be, every man should be asked, "What's your contraception plan?" Mm-hmm. I don't care what your orientation is. Every man should be asked this. And men right. men aren't asked that. So there, this is this is health questions, and right. uh, you know, um, men will start uh, exercising. Men will start taking care of their physical health. Men will start caring about mm-hmm. um, some some of the men will start caring how they dress. Uh, these are there's a these are all intertwined.
1: Do you see a, a difference in how they physically present themselves in class from you know from whether they're? I mean, I know that when people oftentimes when people are ashamed and they're acknowledging shame their physicality they'll start to enclose and, and fold their arms and shrivel up and versus like I wish everybody could yeah, see you right now because you're doing you're, a great job. Because yeah. <laughs> I because I've I, you know I, I've certainly noticed when I'm when I feel when I feel good about myself and I feel like I'm in a good place and I'm in a conversation where I feel feel good. Um, my body language changes a lot, mm-hmm. and I think it's really interesting to see. Do you see those cues in group therapy?
2: Actually, it, both in group and individual therapy. Uh-huh. And one of the things OCSB therapy focuses a lot about is the body and somatic and being mm-hmm. aware of the body. Our sexuality lives in our body. How mm-hmm. can we not, you know, be more connected with our body if we're going to address our sexual health? So many times, the men will talk about, you know, um, when the man will admit he hasn't been keeping his agreement and be honest with the group. There'll be a visit visible physical somatic change in their body mm. when they align themselves with their values. Um, men want to live lives aligned with their values right. and, it, and their body actually moves into a, a, a cellular space, I believe, when it's aligned with their values. Mm-hmm. And so, you can visibly see that on their musculature, you can see it in their breathing, you can see it in their posture, you can see it in their eyes, mm-hmm. it's visible. And uh, what I find is men aren't aware of this. And so sometimes you have to really slow down, really slow down and ask somebody, you know, I just noticed something with your mouth right there. Did you notice that? What is that? Is is your body trying to say something? Mm -hmm. Men aren't used to listening to these small
1: nuanced moments their body is saying, yes, I like this. So there, it seems like there isn't judgment that a particular behavior or desire, like fetish, as we, we you know use the term mm-hmm. fetish, unconventional is, turn un, on, sure, unconventional turn on, is wrong. Like there isn't this notion that this is you shouldn't feel this. This should non consent. Okay. Well, outside outside it, it, right. of non-consent, right, 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 uh, or or in the context of fantasy, for mm-hmm. instance, I think it's more more appropriate. A lot of sens- people have non-consensual fantasies. Uh, okay. <laughs> I mean, okay.
2: You mean in, in in what sense? Um, uh, you know, th- fa- you're opening a very uh, big hole here. Sure. I just want you to know. Yeah. So,
1: non-consensual fantasy in, in that sense. Do you mean, for instance, you have fantasies about non non-consensual sex? Yes. Okay. Right. So you know,
2: people in a marriage uh, every t- sometimes look across at their spouse and look at that knife on the kitchen counter and think, "I could stab them right now." Uh, and they well, don't. Oh God. <laughs> but they have the. I mean, right. the, the human
1: brain is a fascinating sure. place. We just we just have to give it permission to have these moments. Right. Right. But, but let's say, for instance, um, someone is experiencing or they they believe they're experiencing out of control sexual behavior. Their yes. fantasies don't seem to be aligned with what their moral values are. Or sex yes. Sexes, is, sex is uh, is. Taking control of their life or Im- impacting their their personal life, their personal well being, they start and they and they work with. Can you. I give
2: you a difference about the, the sex taking control? I think when men are in the situation you're describing, mm-hmm. they're alone, okay. they haven't had any help with it, um, and uh, they they uh, are in a shame state. Okay, and so it, it that that all of that feels like
1: something's out of control because they have an unresolved conflict. Okay. So mm-hmm. they're in this shame state. Mm-hmm. They get to a place where they start to acknowledge and feel better about their sexual fantasies or their this behavior, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Then how do they reconcile that in the context of their relationship if it is incongruous with their partner's uh, sexual behavior? Well, this is called marriage. Uh, <laughs> you know,
2: you know, we change over the Compromise. course. Well, we we change over the course of a lifetime. Uh-huh. Who we said I do to, uh, or how we who we moved in with, or who we fell in love with changes over time people change over time Mm -hmm. we learn things about ourselves over time when we get into a relationship that doesn't mean I'm completely and totally aware of who I am erotically I think that's a misnomer. Mm-hmm. People learn who they are erotically over the course of their life. We know erotic interests change over the course of the lifetime. So what can be difficult is somebody may have fallen in love with somebody who has a particular erotic interest and they know about that, mm-hmm. and it may change. We'd have no skill sets for people to start talking about this. We have no mm-hmm. models for how people begin to negotiate erotic differences over the course of a long-term relationship. Mm-hmm. And we have cultural expectations that are, are, are expected to be made maintained forever, like monogamy or sexual exclusivity or uh, you'll only fantasize about me. These narratives are are so sacrosanct in people's mind Mm -hmm. that the erotic is expected to be sacrificed uh, Mm -hmm. in the name of these uh,
0: cultural narratives. Mm -hmm. And that's a big conflict. Mm-hmm. So you're saying if if it's if, if a relationship or if a person is upholding these six principles of sexual health, then yes, that's the goal, right? I mean, that's, that's what the we goal. Be so I got to be
2: honest with you. I have a sexual turn on that I didn't know I liked. I just mm-hmm. discovered it six months ago, and I think it's going to disgust you. But I want you to know.
0: Mm-hmm. Right? Okay.
2: <laughs>
1: Not an easy conversation to have.
2: Well, who, know, who 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 knows how to say the sentence I just did? Yeah, none of us. <laughs> nobody, right? Well, nobody. this is this is why I want to talk to people because right. that's yeah. a possible human sentence. I just said it. Right, right, <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> it's possible. It's possible. We just right. don't help people have these conversations.
1: Right. Well, we, I think it, 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 we immediately feel like we're going to be judged for having that conversation. Well, we will be. Yeah. It, it, and it's nobody true. likes to be judged.
2: Who does? So yeah. we have to point out to people, do you want to judge me right. or do you want to have a
0: conversation? Right. We can do We can do either. Which one do you want? Right. I'm assuming if somebody has that open conversation and says that, that could end some relationships and some marriages. Is that, yeah. that going to be better we li- off? We, we live in a culture that
2: celebrates uh, monogamy to such a degree that we are willing to have children raised in divorced families because of an erotic conflict a couple mm. will not resolve. And mm-hmm. that is an esteemable and reasonable way to end family life in our culture right wow Nobody holds somebody to the carpet for saying you ended a marriage, you made your family and children live in separate homes the rest of their lives as growing up because you couldn't resolve this erotic difference. Mm-hmm. Now, I know there are people that it's just not going to work, sure. but I think we have to start with the ideas is are you willing to make that the solution to an erotic conflict before actually doing the hard work of so difficult do you, talk?
1: Do you think there, that this divorce epidemic that you know one in two marriages end in divorce is Uh, largely driven by um, a lack of conversation around erotic behavior? The divorce epidemic is is slowing
2: down. Um, And that's because, uh, particularly in younger uh, relationships, there is more fluidity and negotiation around sexual agreements. And the Mm -hmm. expectation of monogamy, the expectation of exclusivity Mm -hmm. um, is not as sacrosanct as it even was 20 years ago. Uh And so I think when we are willing to um, have these sexual health principles guide a relationship rather than uh, conformity to a cultural norm, uh, the altar of
0: monogamy. Um, We may have some other solutions.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. And it's conversations like these that how many people are listening to this conversation right now? That probably never knew that there was, they could talk about it or it was even something they can. So I, I, it's really such an important thing that you're doing and raising awareness around this. Hey, if I can come full circle, uh, one of my concerns about the
2: pathologizing and diseasing of this behavior is I hope somebody had a moment listening here in our conversation where they had empathy with themselves. Mm-hmm. Rather than judge themselves or think they're sick or there's something really wrong with them, they realized wow, I've been alone. Nobody's helped me. I don't know anything about this, and I'm suffering. You know, that's an empathic idea rather than an allegation. Yeah. And and I, I think we start with the allegation so fast, mm-hmm. and then we try to find empathy for the rest of our lives for this mm-hmm. allegation. And I, I think we need to find another narrative to start with. And I'm interested in the first question I ask every man who walks into my office, not anymore because I don't do therapy, but I train therapists to mm-hmm. ask this question, um, what's your vision of sexual health?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And the men look at me like, I have no idea what you're saying. <laughs> and I say, Good. You're not supposed to know what I'm asking yeah. you, but you will know the answer to that question before we end
1: our therapy. You know what I think is really fascinating is that as I'm listening to you talk and I'm thinking about the work that Will does and my perspective on health and well-being, there there's this notion that one, either there's something wrong with me, I'm broken, so I'm, I'm, I am a sick person mm-hmm. versus the idea that I have some behavior or I – have a sickness um, and that can be changed and if you're rooted in this idea there's something fundamentally wrong with me i'm broken because i'm an addict Mm -hmm. or i'm broken because my behavior is amoral and i can't change it then you're sort of resolved to living in this world of shame but what you're presenting is a path towards understanding behavior as being different from um, being fundamentally wrong or broken
2: or I a disease, that, or a I, disease. I, I think that's the language i tend to use more is you know we need if any if, if there's a therapist or a professional or a doctor or a physician or anybody out there that might come in contact with the kind of men we've spoken about here today i think you have to ask yourself you have responsibility do i believe this human behavior when it's sitting in front of me is a disorder a pathology or a disease or i do believe it's a problem and the professional has now a responsibility to decide which side, where they start in that conversation. And, you know, you're going to find people out there that start that it's a disease, and be prepared, because there are people out there that think that. But there are mm-hmm. people who will start this conversation thinking this is a human problem. And just the starting point of the professional will make a big difference in what the client experiences.
1: All right. Well, that was a really interesting conversation with Douglas Braun Harvey. I think it's really fascinating the way he distinguishes between um, sex addiction, which has gotten a lot of a lot of play in the press recently with a lot, of, you know, there are a lot of even celebrities like Terry Crews has come out and spoken about sex addiction and Mike Tyson has and lots of people are, are talking about it. And he kind of reframes it in this idea that it's not really an addiction It's not the same sort of compulsive behavior that Mm -hmm. we've talked about a lot, including in our conversation with Peggy Ornstein, but rather this idea of out of control sexual behavior.
0: Yeah, this sort of mismatch between what your values are and your behavior. And I I think that, and I think it's also very uh, smart that he differentiates consensual sexual behavior like it's like non-consensual exploitative sexual behavior is not what he's talking about right um and i i think that i love the fact that he's bringing in this holistic he calls it a sexual health plan and getting Mm -hmm. guys to a place of resilient sexual health is it's not being talked about at all in our culture uh at at least any considerable way Um, but i think it's what he's doing is really important work and i love that he's now training therapists and professionals in this space to reframe this space because it is so stigmatized and you know so much shame around it the fact that he is destigmatizing it is Mm -hmm. um, i'm really excited to hear about
1: yeah his new book is called treating out of control sexual behavior rethinking sex addiction and if you want to find more information about douglas braun harvey you can go to the harvey got a question you'd like us to answer The Goop team is keeping a running list for us. So just hit them up at Goop on Instagram or Facebook. At the end of every episode, we'll be answering a question from one of you guys. If you have a question about us or about men and wellness or really anything else is on your mind, just let us know.
0: As a functional medicine practitioner, it's been fun seeing the questions that have already come in on different food philosophies and ways to approach health and well-being. And
1: I love to talk about food and cooking. And well, reality is anything. I just love to talk. So send your questions over to the Goop team on Instagram or Facebook.
0: As Goop likes to say, nothing is off limits.
1: All right, time for another ask me anything. This one is from Jeremy. Jeremy wants to know what or who is the last thing you think about before going to sleep? Huh. <laughs> <laughs> That's an interesting question.
0: Yeah, it was the last thing I think about before I go to sleep. That or is who? a very interesting question. Yeah, I I really don't I try not to think of much. I just kind of do a little mindfulness practice before bed. Focus on my breathing. I have like essential oils diffusing. I my goal around sleep is just to unwind and not have racing thoughts, which I'm prone to do. Uh, but if I have the racing thoughts, it could be anything and everything. Uh, but yeah, that, I don't have anything specifically that I I think about before. So, sleep. so
1: you have a full sleep routine where you put on the lavender diffuser and you put on the Yanni on the eight track and <laughs> light a candle
0: and you know rub some crystals yeah. and all of that. Honestly. Pretty much. I am a walking cliche uh, for for goop, for sure. How about you? Well, as as you know, we've talked about this quite a bit. Um,
1: Sleep is something that I definitely am working on. So I try to, as best as I can, to create some routines around sleep. Um, I drink magnesium when I remember to before going to sleep. I don't always remember to do that. I try to have a a cup of tea, some sort of calming tea before going to sleep. And well, this is something I've been doing recently, and it has. It sounds kind of cheesy, but it has really helped me, is when I'm lying in bed with the lights out, I just try to run through a list in my head of all the things that happened in the day that I'm very grateful for. And rather than focusing on um, all the shit that I didn't do or what's stressing me out or what I have to do tomorrow, just to... Be grateful for at least five things that happen um, during the day. And I think that that's really important. That's it for today. Thanks for hanging out with us. Will and I would love to know what you think about Goop Fellas. If you have a chance, please rate and review the podcast here. And
0: if you like what you're hearing, hit subscribe and pass it along to a friend. To see more, head to goop.com GoopFellas. And we hope you'll be here again next Wednesday. Talk soon.